America at a Crossroads is a weekly live webinar series that brings together journalists, scholars, thought leaders, and policymakers for discussions regarding the state of American democracy, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. The series was jointly founded by Jews United for Democracy and Justice and Community Advocates, Inc. To register for our live webinars, join our email list at JewsUnitedForDemocracy.org. So now it is my honor to introduce an integral member of our team, Zev Yaroslavsky, to introduce tonight's guest. Guests, Zev? Thank, thank you, Janice. And uh, I'm going to make the introductions brief so that we can have the maximum amount of time with Ambassador Ross. Uh, Dennis is not a stranger to our uh, webinars. Uh, a fellow, senior fellow at the Washington Institute uh, for Near East Policy, advised three presidents on Middle East policies and the peace process in particular, George H.W. Bush, uh, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Uh, he was uh, instrumental in assisting Israelis and Palestinians to reach the 1995 interim agreement. He also successfully brokered the 1997 Hebron Accord. Uh, He's, we couldn't ask for a more timely uh, uh, appearance of Dennis, and uh, uh, no, nobody has greater expertise in what's going on uh, in the Middle East and the his, historical antecedents of, of uh, the mess we're in now uh, than Dennis Ross, Ambassador Dennis Ross. And he will be interviewed by Pat Morrison, uh, a regular with us, a good friend, a Los Angeles Times uh, uh, columnist and reporter who shared in two Pulitzer Prizes won six Emmys, multiple Golden Globes as, 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 on television and radio, and uh, one of our favorite uh, one of our favorite interlocutors. So I'll turn it over to you, Pat and Dennis. Thank you, Zev, very much. And those of you who watch us regularly will notice that there's a face missing. Our beloved co-founder David Lair died two weeks less a day ago. And if you are not in Los Angeles, maybe you don't know very much about David. There's a great deal about him online in the obituaries. I suggest you read them. David was a man of great heart, great conscience, and really a civic tent pole here for so many of us. I knew him for more than 30 years, and we're all missing him, his presence and his spirit. But this program will try to continue to fulfill what it is that he brought to it, the vision and the ideas he had originally. So thank you for joining us, and thank you for remembering him. Uh, Ambassador Ross, thank you for being here as well. You've been in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we last talked with you almost three weeks ago, it was a very different world then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Positions, public positions have changed. Uh, Israel saw enormous demonstrations in the capitals of the world in favor and support of Israel. Now we see a lot of demonstrations in favor and support of the Palestinians and even Hamas and conflating the two of them. So maybe since this uh, this period, since the attacks and now, you can reset the table for us with the players what's happening, and what it looks like going forward. Okay, well, look, thank you for posing the question that way, because it is a, a good way to think of, of where we are and how things have evolved over the of the course of one month. I do just want to say, I, I didn't know David as well as many of you, but I did get to know him over the course of the last five or six years, and uh, he was kind-hearted uh, and very thoughtful, uh, and um, even for someone who didn't have such a close relationship with him, I will miss him. Uh, in terms of where we are and how things have evolved, uh, in a sense, what we've seen happen is uh, Israel has 
launched basically a response against Hamas based on a premise. The premise was October 7th changed the world for Israel. Uh, when we think about Israel today, uh, don't think that the Israel of October 6th is the same as Israel of October, uh, post-October 7th. November 7th is like a different Israel from what it was the last time I was on. When we talk about the context and what's happened internationally, we also have to understand that Israel is a different place. Uh, Israelis believe that uh, they cannot live with Hamas next door. And this is a left to right life phenomenon. They believe uh, that uh, everything that took place on October 7th was not just a shock and a trauma, but it was a reminder of who Hamas was in a way that maybe Israelis had, and maybe the rest of the world had not fully appreciated. It wasn't just the brutality, it was also torturing um, men, women, children, and, and celebrating in the torture. And that has kind of permeated the, the consciousness of Israelis. And the reason I say it is not just to create a context, but also to explain that the way Israel has attacked doesn't reflect the way it has before. Uh, in the past, when Israel was carrying out its attacks against Hamas, it would weigh each target. There might be enormous military value with the target, but if the, the civilian costs were seen as being too high, the balance was weighted towards not attacking as opposed to attacking. This time we've seen with the way the bombing campaign has been conducted, <clears throat> that the the balance uh, or the calculus uh, has shifted more towards if the military target is of high value, even if there's going to be civilian consequences and civilian casualties, <clears throat> the balance of decision-making has tilted towards we need to take out that military target because when this is over, Hamas cannot be in a position where it still can threaten Israel. And fundamentally, Hamas cannot be in a position where it still controls Gaza. When you hear some terms, people will say in Israel, annihilate Hamas, that's not the objective. The Israelis understand well, the IDF understands very well uh, that you're not going to uh, annihilate Hamas because it exists outside of Gaza. You're not going to get every single Hamas member or every single armed uh, Hamas uh, fighter. There is a sense, though, of attacking Hamas in a way that destroys its military wherewithal, attacking it in a way that destroys the organizational coherence uh, of Hamas in Gaza, attacking it in a way that basically has it lose its command control. So the weight is put on these military targets, uh, and we've seen what is a very high casualties, fatalities on the Palestinian side in Gaza, which reflects that decision-making process, but it also reflects another reality. Hamas has embedded itself in highly populated, dense populated areas. It puts its command control in ammunition sites, uh, uh, under schools, under hospitals, uh, under mosques. Uh, it builds these extensive tunnels, which it uses to protect itself, but not the Palestinian public. Uh, and it wants the maximum number of Palestinians to be killed because it believes that will shift the kind of pressure and actually lead Israel to being forced by the outside world, by the United States, to stop. It wants to stop Israel because that's the way it survives. Uh, the problem, of course, is as Israel proceeds with a campaign that produces very high civilian casualties, and we've seen high civilian casualties, 
uh, it does shift the kind of balance of opinion. And we've seen it uh, in this country. I can tell you, having just come back from the, from the region, those images on the, all of the Arab satellite uh, stations, especially Al Jazeera, have a searing effect. Uh, and it's the the image of Palestinian casualties that affects the mindset and the and the emotions uh, of Arab publics, and that affects uh, the attitudes of of Arab leaders, who on the one hand want Hamas to lose, but on the other hand feel the need to to bring about a ceasefire without necessarily thinking, okay, does that lead to Hamas winning, or does it lead to Hamas losing? And so we've we've seen a kind of shift take place. We see pressures on the Biden administration. The president has very much stood up in support of Israel, but you can also see the administration and the president are putting increasing pressure on Israel to take more account of the humanitarian needs. Uh, and I think the reality is Israel does need, if it wants to buy time and space to do more on the military side, it needs to demonstrate it's doing more to really try to limit Palestinian casualties and get more humanitarian assistance into Gaza. But as far as we've seen with Ambassador Blinken or with Secretary of State Blinken, a lot of that has been rebuffed by Netanyahu and his administration. The last time you were here, you said it's important in Israel's interest to show they're fighting Hamas and not punishing the Palestinian people. It's an important distinction. It's one that's lost on a lot of people around the world. How How is Israel doing in this? Well, I think that for the first few weeks, we didn't see them make the kind of effort I would have liked to see them make. Uh, again, I think it's shaped by the shock and the trauma and the conviction that they have to be able to defeat Hamas. And again, to be fair, some of it is also based on the sense we don't have an endless amount of time. And that means you go after targets that uh, really uh, offer the biggest payoff in terms of military successes, even if it means there's going to be a, a, a price, a toll on the Palestinian civilians. And so you know, would I have liked to have seen them do more? Yes, absolutely. As I said from the beginning, I understood that to have time and space, they were going to need to to maximize what they were doing on the humanitarian issue. One of the, but I'll tell you again, the mood in Israel, and it's left to right, uh, those who were the strongest peaceniks are just as convinced that Hamas has to be decisively defeated. And here's where there's a, a kind of tension, because the the fact that all the hostages are being held, 240 uh, were the, the number of hostages the Israelis have concluded were taken of every age, uh, including as, as young as six months. Uh, and the attitude within Israel is lifting the siege or allowing much more humanitarian assistance to go in shouldn't be done so long as the hostages are being held and there's no release of hostages. The problem is that in the end, that doesn't really affect Hamas. Hamas doesn't mind if Palestinians are suffering. It wants more of that because it sees more pressure being put on Israel. The idea that those in Israel who feel if we withhold this so that they understand they can get it only if they release the hostages, they're applying pressure on the people who have no control over whether or not hostages are going to be released. So you you have a, you know, it's a dilemma. Uh, I, under, I understand some of the pressures on the Israelis, but at the end of the day, you know, you if you want to have enough time to get the military job done, then you also are going to have to demonstrate you're doing much more to deal with the humanitarian needs of Palestinians. Now they're beginning well, to do 
They are uh, beginning to do it. Uh, there's a, a point that uh, Robert asked us about this, and it reminds me sort of queasily of the American conundrum in Vietnam. It says, how does the IDF know who is Hamas and who's a Palestinian civilian? Here, it's actually easier than you think. Most of the Hamas fighters are basically uh, coming out of tunnels. Uh, and and, they're, and they are wearing, uh, you know, they're, they're heavily armed. Uh, they are, uh, they wear a kind of uniform. This is not like Vietnam where you really couldn't tell, you couldn't draw a distinction between the public uh, and the Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese, especially the Viet Cong. Here, uh, most of the fighters don't expose themselves. They come out of tunnels or if they're, you know, the Israelis will spot them in buildings. Uh, so it's the issue, What the reason Palestinian civilians are exposed is because, again, most of these, the command positions, the military positions are in heavily populated areas, number one. Uh, Hamas, uh, Hamas has made a very determined effort to try to block people from leaving. The Israelis call for them to move to the south. In one case, we know that the Hamas actually fired mortars on Salahuddin Street, to, which is a main thoroughfare going north to south, to prevent those who were moving. They want to keep them uh, as a kind of human shield. Uh, so it's not it's 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 more the bombing than the ground offensive that exposes the Palestinian civilians. Now, one of the problems there is a this is a combined arms approach on the part of Israel. For the first couple of weeks, it was just the bombing, and that exposed the Palestinian civilians much more than anything else. <clears throat> In the last ten days since the Israelis have been acting on the ground. They still call in strikes. They will identify uh, a Hamas stronghold, or they'll identify what is you know, what is an effort to ambush them. Uh, either intelligence will get it, or or Israeli spotters on the ground will get it. They will call in an airstrike or helicopters, and there may still be uh, there may still be civilians who get killed as part of that. But the the numbers are actually lower uh, as it relates to the ground offensive than it does for um, for bombing from the air. Uh, Ambassador, as I pointed out, you just got back from from Saudi Arabia, and um, there are, the nations in the Mideast are are not open. Like Egypt is does not want um, Palestinians coming into Egypt in great numbers, and the fate of the Palestinians has always been a problem. You've got countries like Jordan where you have a lot of Palestinians, but where is is the Muslim world and the Arab world? And I make that distinction because Iran is Muslim, but it is not right. Arab. Right. In terms of how it's deciding to sit back and see what's going to happen, where it chooses, if it chooses to apply any pressure at all, what's what's going on behind some of the pronouncements that we're seeing when it comes to these Muslim nations? I, I think there's a uh, there's different layers to this. Hardly a surprise in the Middle East. There's always multiple layers. On the one hand, there is some there are some quiet discussions going on mostly about how to bring this to an end. Uh, a little bit of discussion about what comes afterwards. On the, what you're seeing for the most part is a quiet evolution. From the very beginning, what you had is you had two uh, Arab countries, uh, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, who very quickly and explicitly condemned what Hamas did. Others condemned the killing of civilians, which was a 
it was a way of acknowledging that this had happened in Israel, but it was still a more neutral way of doing it. It wasn't singling out Hamas. That was happening because there was an anticipation of how Israel was going to retaliate and, a, and an expectation that there would be a lot of Palestinian civilian casualties. So there was a kind of positioning that was, you know, trying to strike a balance. Some of the early discussions, I think, were based on how quickly can Israel get this done? There was a desire among many of the Arabs and even some of the, the Muslim countries, not Iran, uh, but, you know, uh, countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, to, you know, see this over. Hamas is not, Hamas is not viewed in a positive way by almost any of the Sunni Arab governments. They see it as an extension of the Muslim Brotherhood. They see it as, you know, in, in many ways becoming, even though it's Sunni, uh, an instrument of the Iranians. Uh, they define themselves as being part of what they call the the axis of resistance. Uh, and so most of the Sunni Arab states view that as being threatening. But the, the the real focus has been increasingly on, you know, the need for a ceasefire because they want to create calm among their publics. There are certain Arab states that worry about big demonstrations that may start off as demonstrations about the Palestinians, but turn into demonstrations against the regime. So there's a there's a degree of anxiety uh, about that. Uh, and there's obviously just a degree about, you know, wanting to come an environment that it, it's understandable uh, that this takes on a kind of life of its own. The countries are who have, you know, maintained a, uh, a relationship with Hamas, allow the political leaders of Hamas. I want to just I want to just make a point here. There is. The political leadership of Hamas that is almost entirely outside of Gaza. There are the, the military leaders of Hamas who were the architects of October 7th. Uh, sometimes the, the political leaders will make great claims about what they can deliver. Uh, and they're the ones who are sitting in Qatar. Uh, and it's not clear uh, if how much they want to convince the military leaders of Hamas to be responsive to releasing the hostages, uh, how much they see the holding of the hostages as an important asset. Um, I think I said the first time was on a couple of weeks ago, Hamas took the hostages because they thought it would deter the Israelis or limit what the Israelis would do based on their own experience. Yaya Sinwar was one of those who was released in 2011 as part of uh, 1,082 Palestinian prisoners being released for one Israeli, Gilad Shalit. So, you know, the there was a sense that people like Sinwar felt he knew the Israelis much better than the political leadership. He had been a prisoner for 23 years. He's fluent in Hebrew. Uh, and by the way, the Israelis felt they knew him too. Uh, it turns out they really didn't. But anyway, I think the just to get back to Qatar for a second, Qatar has been uh, making an effort to get the, the hostages released. I don't know if there was at one point a proposal to actually release the hostages and have the Hamas leadership leave Gaza, a little bit like in 1982 when Yasser Arafat, after the siege of Beirut, he and the PLO fighters left Lebanon and went to Tunisia. Um, I think at one point Qatar might have proposed that or at least uh, raised it. Uh, it didn't go any place. Uh, and honestly, it didn't surprise me. Uh, the Sinwar and Marwan Issa 
uh, and Mohammed Daif, who are the real architects of what happened on October 7th. They come from the Izadim al-Qassam Brigade uh, in Gaza. They are true believers. And for them to leave, it would be looking like they weren't prepared. They were prepared to, to leave themselves and sacrifice everyone else who were the fighters. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, if that proposal was raised, and I, I don't want to push it too much, uh, I'm not surprised it didn't go very far. With the, the Biden administration has been in a bit of a vice, uh, certainly domestically, it's been getting some pressure from other Democrats uh, to to pressure uh, Netanyahu for a ceasefire or a pause. And I'll ask you about the distinction shortly. Yeah. But um, but but also there's um, there's pressure from what it can or cannot do, what kind of voice or influence it has with Netanyahu and how it can play all of these interests off with the other countries in the Mideast and with the, the U.S. allies who up to a point had gone along with, uh, with Biden and with Israel. Look, I think you put your finger on something that reflects the challenges that the administration is facing. And I would even say that the president personally, the president has an emotional reaction to what happened on October 7th because of this deep emotional bond that he feels with Israel. Uh, he's not at all indifferent to uh, the, the the cost, the toll that's being imposed on Palestinians, but he shares the same basic premise that Israel should not have to live uh, again facing the threat from Hamas. You know, Ghazi Hamad, who has always been portrayed as one of the moderate Hamas officials, said, we will do October 7th again and again and again. Uh, and that just that sort of validates the Israeli view. We can't live with them. And it sort of reinforces the president's attitude that the Israelis shouldn't have to live with that. But he's also trying to balance, you know, not doing this, have, not having the Israelis do it in a way that imposes such a terrible price on the Palestinians uh, that, you know, you lose others who should be supportive of this basic is, Israeli goal. You know, so far, the Europeans have stayed pretty steady in terms of sticking with Israel and supporting the Biden position on this. But we've we've seen now the the basically the the foreign minister of the of European Union, Yosef uh, Borrell, has come out and he's called for a ceasefire. Uh, and clearly that's the attitude the when Secretary of State Blinken over the weekend was in Amman and he met with the foreign ministers of, of Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, and the Secretary General of the PLO, he got an earful on the need for an immediate ceasefire. So you have an administration that's trying to balance conflicting pressures while also trying to be true to an objective that ends with Hamas no longer in control of Gaza and not in a position to be threatening Israel. And trying to reconcile this is, is extremely difficult. Uh, I still think what you see, the administration is trying to create space for Israel, but it's requiring more from Israel on the humanitarian issue to be able to do that. Uh, and you're right that there's been a public kind of rebuff of the request for a pause. And I want to, um, you, you said you're going to pose the question, so I'll preempt your, your question. <laughs> the difference between a ceasefire, a ceasefire is basically you're bringing this to an end. You had a ceasefire in 2009. Yeah, you had a ceasefire in 2012. You had a ceasefire after 2014 where it went on for 52 days. There's a ceasefire in 2021. 
in all these cases that ended what were the, the conflict, the hostilities at that moment. And in all these cases, Hamas was able to recoup and rebuild itself. Notwithstanding the fact that Israel had a blockade, which tells you something about the limits of the blockade. Uh, so a ceasefire means you just basically go back and you act as if October 7th never happened. You do treat it like every previous one of these conflicts. Even if the Israelis are isolated, they're not going to let that be the, the result. So a, a temporary pause is different. Temporary pause in lots of different conflicts. You'll see uh, a 12-hour pause to allow humanitarian assistance to be uh, delivered or, uh, you know, a 10-hour pause to permit people to move uh, along corridors that can be can remain safe. Uh, the Israelis yesterday allowed a three-hour pause for Palestinians to move from the north to the south. So they also allowed uh, Jordan to fly in uh, and do an airdrop of humanitarian assistance. They're allowing the UAE now to set up a field hospital as well. So you're beginning to see the effect of the administration's efforts uh, on Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Israeli government. You know, it's. I think they're going to press for more, and I think they will continue to press for. And this, as I said, becomes easier when you're part of the ground campaign because the bombing isn't going to be the same as it was during the preceding period. I think the administration wants to show it's having a difference, not only for the region, not only for our air partners, but for the domestic audience here as well. Uh, let me synthesize a number of questions. You just, Pat, you got I beg your pardon. Let me synthesize a number of questions we're getting about how effective this campaign by Israel can be. How how effective can it can be to wipe out Hamas? A good portion of Hamas may not even be in Gaza right now. Would it radicalize a new generation just of Palestinians, never mind what it's doing in the rest of the region? So so what does that victory look like? How how does Israel count it and say, all right, mission accomplished? I know an unfortunate choice of phrase given its history in this country, but essentially that's what it amounts to. Look, it's an excellent question because at some point Israel will have to define that it has achieved what its mission was. Uh, I was saying before, this is not wiping out Hamas. It's not doing that. That's not the aim. The aim is uh, much more geared towards ensuring that Hamas doesn't have the military wherewithal uh, and that infrastructure, which is also uh, a very embedded infrastructure in terms of tunnels, but it's not. They have bomb-making labs. They have rocket-making labs. They have mortar-making labs. Uh, you know, they have a variety of training facilities. All that they want to be able to destroy. Uh, and that is that is probably achievable. They have all sorts of compounds. The Israelis have seized a number of compounds where they have, you know, they, in a, in a mosque today, they... They took over a compound that was under a mosque. It had 50 rockets in it. There was a boys club that they that they took over as well. It had another 50 rockets in it. So there are all sorts of arms caches everywhere. There are all sorts of compounds. They're seizing intelligence. They're seizing plans. Um, they're seizing uh, a number of their, they destroyed a number of the tunnels now. Uh, so they want to put themselves in a position where militarily, Hamas basically has lost the wherewithal. You'll see, by the way, 
the numbers of rockets being fired into, into Israel now down very dramatically. There'll still be alerts during the day, but the numbers, you know, yesterday they had uh, close to 12 hours with no alerts. Uh, so the, they're getting they're in a they're increasingly in a position where Hamas is finding it harder and harder to be able to fire rockets. It hasn't ended yet, but that's also a sign that they are making more progress on the ground. The key, I think, here is not just the military, but also are they in a position where Hamas basically loses the ability to command and control and operate as an organization? And so much of what they're going after is a lot of the leadership. Uh, the commanders of all the brigades, the battalions, uh, and here again, you know, they they have uh, they have data, uh, they have face recognition data on you know thousands of Hamas fighters. So this is this is a very different kind of operation. You hear people say, "Look, it's it's like Fallujah." Well, actually, it's not like Fallujah because. Fallujah was 6,000 miles from here. This is right next door. Israel actually has a lot of experience engaging in this kind of, of warfare in Gaza in the past, certainly in the West Bank. Uh, the question is, and this is something that Israel, I would like to see Israel do that they're not doing uh, with us. I'd like to see them be, and even I'd like to see them do it quietly with a number of the Arab leaders, go through and explain, you know, here's what the military objective is. Here's where we are in terms of what we knew we had to be able to destroy. Uh, here's where we are in terms of disrupting and basically undermining uh, the command control. Here's where we are in terms of identifying and uh, and being able to uh, decimate the, 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 the leadership there. Uh, the issue of radicalizing the public, I would just note one thing. In, in the 52 days in 2014, there was a lot of destruction. There were something like 3,000 buildings that were destroyed uh, in in 2014. Uh, there wasn't 10,000 Palestinians who were killed, but there were about 3,000 who were killed. When Palestinians, at the end of that, after 52 days, they were angry at Israel, but they were angry at Hamas for subjecting uh, them to this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it raises an, an important question. What's interesting to me is that both the Israelis and the, the Arabs are focused on what's happening right now and not so much the day after. It's as if both sides are counting on the U.S. to come in with a day after plan. Uh, and it may be that we are the ones who will have to come in with a day after plan. Uh, that day after plan has to create an alternative administration, an interim administration in Gaza. It needs very rapid reconstruction of infrastructure as a way of showing when Hamas is not in control, life changes dramatically for the better. Uh, and that, you know, that can change, I think, the reality in Gaza and the psychology. One caveat, you know, Hamas has been socializing um, and educating people from the age of three. So there's a, you know, this, this is a uh, there's an ethos there that has been socialized as well, but it's not the majority of the of the Gazans. Uh, you know, the there was a poll beforehand. I don't remember if I said this the first time I was on, but 62 percent of Palestinians in Gaza did not want Hamas to, to break the ceasefire. Uh, and uh, what I mentioned before, I think whispers in Gaza 
the the people who are responsible for that are still talking to people in Gaza and are putting up some of these interviews now. Uh, again, that people there want want this to end. So, I you know, is there the longer this goes on, does it create the potential for radicalization? It does, if especially if you leave a vacuum. If Israel, you know, Israel can't do this and then just withdraw and leave a vacuum. So Israel will need to have a way to get out. But I would like to see Israel do a number of things in addition to the humanitarian issues. I'd like Israel to announce very clearly, we're not staying, we will get out. One, two, we we are not trying to drive Palestinians out of Gaza. Uh, three, we will not keep any territory in Gaza when this is over. Four, the blockade, when Hamas is no longer in power, the blockade that we've had on since 2007, we will lift. It it still does bring in historical lessons. We think of what happened in Afghanistan, the American effort to rebuild schools and institutions, and yet that small number of Taliban managed to destabilize it. The same thing in Iraq with ISIS. Are these lessons that we're going to learn from if essentially Gaza has to be rebuilt from the bottom up? I do think it's different in one very important respect. Uh, People tend to forget the highest per capita number of advanced degrees in the Arab world is among Palestinians. Uh, This is an educated population in Gaza. Uh, And there are technicians there, uh, technical people. Uh, It's not like Afghanistan that was dramatically less developed. Uh, There is a potential here. For rebuilding, ironically, because of the small size of Gaza, the potential for rebuilding it and fairly rapidly, you know, with, you know, in relative terms, ten billion dollars would go very far towards rebuilding Gaza. When we talk about rebuilding Syria, where you had six hundred thousand dead, it's about four hundred billion dollars. This is not like that, uh, and so look, I don't, I don't want to suggest this is simple, but it's not quite the same as what we've seen in other places. This is not a public that was as radicalized, uh, you know, in as part of Iraq was because of the effect of us going in. And dollars are these, Ambassador? I do believe we're going to see the, the Gulf states contribute in a significant way. Uh, I think the the Emiratis, the Saudis, the Kuwaitis, and I would say especially the Qatar, the Qataris, you know, they've have maintained this relationship with with Hamas. They have helped to bankroll Hamas. Now they need to shift and focus and help rebuild Gaza that uh, that that Hamas has uh, done so much to to contribute to its destruction. Let's bring in some more of the questions from you who are watching there. Stuart wants to know, does the United States have sufficient leverage to compel Netanyahu to agree to a two-state solution in exchange for guarantees of Israel's security? We're looking at the fate of the two-state, delusion, uh, two-state solution here. I think the answer on that is no. Um, but I think you also have to take a step back. Uh, again, the people who were the most pronounced peaceniks in Israel are not talking about concessions to the Palestinians right now. One of the things we have to realize is the nature of the trauma in Israel 
uh, has riveted Israel on the immediate task at hand. There will be a political reckoning in Israel. It will come. And there will be a debate over relations with Palestinians. It will come. But the emotionally processing what has happened also has to take place in Israel. Uh, and you know, pressing the Israelis now for two states at a time when they're still reeling from what's happened uh, is going to produce a backlash, including from those who would be your natural allies in Israel. You have to let this process play itself out. You have to get beyond where we are. Uh, there will be a political reckoning and there will be a debate on the relations with with the Palestinians, which honestly has never taken place. Oslo was done was a secret process. Uh, and when it was uh, unveiled by Prime Minister Rabin, you know, he had a lot of opposition. There wasn't a debate about it because it was already it was basically adopted when the interim agreement was was passed it was passed 61 to 59 the opposition was reflexively against it you know the the government made the case for it but you didn't have this underlying debate about well what should the relations with the palestinians be the peace camp was killed in israel by the second intifada since that time there's been literally nobody uh has has been in a prominent political position and, and has sort of been able to say look we need to sit down we need to have a discussion what kind of relationship do we need to have with the Palestinians? Uh, and that is going to come. And it will have different schools of thought. There will be those who say we couldn't possibly afford a Palestinian state because what if a Hamas-like group comes to take it over? But you'll have others who will say, we've just defeated Hamas. Anybody who thinks that you can freeze the relationship with Palestinians on exclusively our terms and you won't radicalize the Palestinians so we don't face a successor to Hamas, you're in a dream world. That's coming, but it's not happening right now. So how can Israel monitor for its own safety, if nothing else, a new, newly constituted Gaza without that sense of occupation that is such a trigger word? Uh, because Israel doesn't want to stay, the key becomes, can you create an interim administration, a transitional administration, under an international umbrella, I would prefer a UN mandate uh, that uh, that creates this a civil administration, a security presence in force, uh, and creates a basis for reconstruction based on demilitarization and the monitoring of all materials that come in, so you know what they're how they're being used and and what the end use is. Uh, if this is done in a credible way, the Israelis will be able to accept it. Now, in a credible way, when I say UN mandate, if this is an American initiative to try to get it to the Security Council, you can guarantee that Putin will veto it. But if it's a Saudi-led Arab initiative, he will not veto it. He values his relationship with the Saudis. The Saudis, here's one of the, there are, there are certain kinds of tensions and objectives right now. One is this issue of you've got to defeat Hamas versus the idea of an immediate ceasefire. The other is, my sense now from not just the Saudis, but others is they are prepare, prepared to play a different role. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've been trying to convince the administration and different Arab leaderships that there really needs to be reform of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. It's lost its legitimacy because it's terrible governance and corruption. And you need it to have a, a newly empowered prime minister, much like Salam Fayyad in 2007, who comes in and cleans it up. 
I've, I, I'm now hearing a very different set of attitudes uh, about, okay, there needs to be uh, reform there and, and we are prepared to play a role, which they weren't prepared to before. They want that because they want to see the PA uh, get back into Gaza after some sort of transitional period. But when they say, look, we'll play this role, we'll help support this transitional period in Gaza, we'll contribute to the reconstruction in Gaza, but we don't want to deal with it in isolation. A word I was consistently hearing was there has to be a holistic approach, meaning, yes, transition in Gaza, yes, reform uh, in the West Bank, but also a political horizon, a political horizon that ends with two states. So here, what I was just saying about the Israelis have to process this, and what you're seeing on the Arab side, if you want us to play a role, we have to see there's a real political horizon that two states is absolutely on the agenda. And so here again, you got to kind of bridge these two positions. Uh, and, you know, it means in my mind, we can get back to it, but we have to be smart about the way we go about it. Uh, we have to make it clear that, yeah, there's a, you know, a precondition for being able to get to two states, which, by the way, is a fact. If you don't defeat Hamas, there is no possibility for uh, peace because you're going to end up with the ideology of rejection will be given an enormous boost. If you defeat Hamas, then you've taken away one of the instruments of, of Iran. You've taken away one of the critical players that has opposed all moves towards peace, uh, and it puts you in a different place. But it also requires us, at least we, and you've heard President Biden talk about two states now. You're hearing Secretary Blinken talk about two states now. We have to begin to frame this in a way uh, that makes it clear that's the direction we're going. Uh, the Israelis, you can't impose it on them. But you can help them adjust to this reality as they themselves go through this process of trying to completely come to grips with what happened in, on October 7th. Uh, one day, one of our viewers wants to know about any underground resistance by Palestinians to Hamas, something that might be even enough of a critical mass to aid yeah. in the process you're talking about. You know, Hamas has been so good at literally chopping off the head of anybody who raises it up. Uh, in opposition. There were demonstrations. People didn't realize a couple months ago, there were demonstrations in Gaza against the economic conditions. And they were very brutally and very rapidly put down. Uh, anybody who raises any dissent was immediately either arrested or in some cases they didn't they didn't live to tell the tale. So it's that the, they have the instruments of coercion. I think it is possible if you if you create this uh, this uh, transitional arrangement, I mean, if you take a look, for example, there is precedent for it. You know, after the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, uh, there was a UN mandate for what was a, tra a transitional administration that actually brought in outside administrators. Actually, the the head of the, of the new administration was actually from Japan, but they brought in a, a significant uh, military force as well. I would actually like to, I would like to do it differently in Gaza. I would like to have that international umbrella. I'd like to have that UN mandate, but I'd like Palestinian technocrats to be the ones who who run the administration. I would like to see a mix of security forces from the region and outside the region. I would like to see uh, those who have experience in post-conflict situations with reconstruction, like the Canadians come in to help manage that process. 
I, I would like to do it that way. It's not, I don't see Cambodia as a model. I see it as an interesting precedent in terms of building a, a credible uh, transition administration uh, and, and with the UN mandate, but I'd like to construct it somewhat differently. Uh, we saw an apropos of a question from, um, uh, let me see if I can find it, Barbara, about Israel and Hamas and the international support for Ukraine. We've already seen the Republican leadership yeah. in Congress want to divide support from Israel from the support for Ukraine. And we've also seen Putin meet with Hamas. So what is the strategy from Putin's point of view? We have Russia with a veto on the United Nations Security Council. Putin obviously seeing some advantage to be parlayed here, or he wouldn't have done this in the first place. Let's look at his motivation. Uh, his motivation is uh, the expand this war. We want to prevent an expansion of the war. That's why we've deployed the kind of forces to the region uh, and signaled Iran and signaled Hezbollah, you know, don't play with fire. Uh, he wants to do exactly the opposite. But that's not where China is. China doesn't want to see a region-wide war. Uh, and you know, Iran is much more dependent on China than it is on the Russians. Quite the opposite. The Russians depend on the Iranians. Uh, he, he wants to divert attention away from what's going on in Ukraine. He wants to make it harder for us to continue to support Ukraine. And he, he sees there's a division among Republicans. It's, it's less a division between Republicans and Democrats than it's a division among Republicans. You look at the Senate Republicans, they're much more prepared to go ahead uh, and support what is both the, the, the supplemental that the president was asking for, for both uh, Israel and Ukraine. It's the House Republicans that have been unwilling to do that. Uh, Putin, of course, sees those differences and he, and he hopes to win a war of attrition and he hopes that we will stop supporting Ukraine or, or basically grow weary of it. He hopes the Europeans will as well. His only chance of success is that. Uh, so he sees this war as a great opportunity. Not a surprise that he's promoting Hamas. You know, he he wants this to, you know, he wants this to uh, create problems for the United States. He wants it to divert our attention. Uh, he's not interested in in Israel winning. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he's he's someone who does pay attention to power. A lot of questions are being posed about the day after in Israel itself, yeah. and uh, it may be cynical to suggest that the longer the war goes on, the longer Netanyahu's own reckoning for the consequences of this is put off, the longer he stays in power. Yeah. Look down yeah. the road to that day, would you? Look, I, uh, I look at what the reaction was to 1973, the, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, you had the Argonaut Commission. Uh, it formed after the end of the war, the end of the war, end of the end of October. It issued its report in March. Uh, it only called for the resignation of the uh, uh, the head of the, the military chief staff of the military and the head of military intelligence. It did not call for the head for the resignation of the prime minister or the defense minister. Tens of thousands of reservists hit the streets and demanded they resign. To think that you'll have the darkest day in Israel's history, dramatically worse than the 73 war. Because the 73 war, it touched the Sinai and the Golan Heights, uh, didn't touch Israel proper. This was first time in Israel's history 
really since the War of Independence, uh, where uh, Israel lost territory and had to regain it within Israel. And it suffered grievous losses. Forget the brutality and the torture and so forth. Uh, you know, this was something it never experienced before. The idea that it's going to be only the military and the intelligence and not the political uh, echelon that will pay a price really strains the bounds of credulity. Uh, so there'll be a political reckoning for sure. Exactly what it looked like, I don't know, but it's coming. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I don't, I think you have to let it play out. Israel is a democracy where there is accountability. Uh, and, you know, it's to expect that this won't happen. We we saw from January to October 6, we saw 40 weeks of demonstrations, big demonstrations by Israelis who felt their democratic identity was being threatened. Uh, there will be that impulse uh, is going to be magnified because of the, the shock of this. Uh, and and also just the, you know, the level of heroism on that day, the number of Hamas that came in was 3,000. They, you know, the you had small groups of Israelis, you know, people who were military units didn't go down there, small segments of it went down there. Uh, they were outnumbered, outgunned, and yet the, the level of, of heroism actually reduced what would have been a much worse toll than the one that we even saw. So they're all going to say, uh, how did this happen? It's coming. Well, Ambassador, given the intelligence failures, how reliable is the information that Israel and the IDF have about who in Gaza is Hamas and who isn't? Because I think that that's a perennial question that's emerged about right. who the targets are, the human targets, not the infrastructure yeah. targets. But here I'd say um, it's really two very different levels of intelligence realities here. This intelligence failure was based on an assumption. The assumption was that Yahya Sinwar had no interest in a conflict with Israel. And therefore, everything that was taking place was interpreted through a prism. The, the difference between intelligence analysis based on assumptions and technical intelligence, Israel has, I was saying this before, because of facial recognition, Israel has a roster of several thousand of the Hamas fighters. That's technical intelligence. That kind of stuff is different than do you make an assumption about what their intentions are and what they're going to do? This is identifying who are the fighters. They know every battalion, every brigade. They know the leaders of each of those battalions and the brigades. They can give you chapter and verse on who they are and what their history was. They know that many of these were part of the were released as part of the Gilad Shalit deal. So they're... The technical intelligence remains, was always very good. It was the, the analytical side of this and the assumptions that were made that produced such a colossal intelligence failure. So many of our viewers wonder what is likely to happen to the hostages. You talk about a different attitude, maybe a different policy in Israel than the one soldier for whom yeah. a thousand some Palestinians yeah. were exchanged. This is a different set of circumstances and in many ways, a much harder one emotionally and perhaps tactically as well. 
Look, it is. Uh, you know, I have spoken about what are excruciating dilemmas and choices that have to be made. Nothing is more excruciating than than the issue of the hostages. Uh, deeply felt in Israel. Uh, I have a suspicion that the countries will end up succeeding in getting some broader releases. Uh, and uh, I don't know this, but I have a suspicion that uh, Bill Burns was, the, our CIA director was just in Israel and now he's on his way to Qatar. Now, maybe I'm putting one and one together and and not coming up with the right answer. But the fact that he's going to Qatar uh, suggests to me that this is about this is about the hostages uh, and um, maybe trying to influence Hamas as well. But I but I think this is about the hostages and I'm uh, I suspect we'll see something. But, you know, uh, a deal where all the hostages are released is highly unlikely. Hamas was basically trying to negotiate for releasing some hostages in return for uh, the Israelis, uh, you know, taking certain steps like providing fuel, as an example, which, of course, Hamas has plenty of. Uh, but fuel is an issue, obviously, for the hospitals. Uh, and uh, and so. You know, they were saying, okay, we want something. We don't release hostages unless we get something for it. And they were pressing for, they wanted prisoners released to release the hostages. So I think my guess is Qatar has has put pressure on them. Uh, partly, Qatar's in a position where with us, it needs to say, it needs to justify, okay, you have this relationship with Hamas. Uh, we're trying to see what benefit you claim it has benefits. We're seeing no indication of that. Uh, but I'm, I wonder whether, as I said, the Burns trip is related to the hostages. I may be wrong about this, uh, does, but I just, it, it just, it, that's the way it feels to me. Does Israel need to prepare its people for the possibility that the hostages will never come back? It's a really hard thing to do. Uh, first of all, to look the families in the face and say, they're not coming back. It's a very hard thing to do. Uh, the families are saying you have to make every effort. The government is saying we're making every effort. Uh, but there's a, I've, I've said throughout, there's tension in objectives. Ceasefire versus defeating Hamas. You know, creating a political horizon with two states at a time when the Israelis aren't yet processing that. Uh, you have a set of military objectives. Uh, the danger to, there's the danger to, a lot of the, the hostages, especially, you can assume they're probably being held in the most sensitive places that are the most important to Hamas as a as a basically as a form of protection. So, you know, what happens if there are rescue operations? You know, we have one, we know that one one of the hostages was rescued by the Israelis. Um, you know, the track record on rescue operations is is mixed in terms of you you clearly succeed in getting some saved but not not others even in of that yeah i mean look there and tebby was was a great success but i i remember when i was in in 1994 uh colonel uh voxman was uh 
kidnapped. Uh, and Rabin asked me to go to Arafat because he thought that he he thought he was kidnapped to Gaza. And Arafat said he's not in Gaza. And he turned out he was in East Jerusalem. And the Israelis launched a rescue operation, uh, and it failed. I mean, they 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 stormed the site, but he got killed. Uh, and um, you know, it's a you do these rescue operations when you have the when you have the intelligence, when you think you can you have a shot, but also when you think there's a danger that if you don't do it, the hostages are going to be killed anyway. So look, it's these are, I said, excruciating is the right word, and it's you hate to be the person who has to make these choices. Ambassador, our late co-founder David Lehrer was an indefatigable optimist, and he asked, as you may remember, at after every session, that we wind up with something positive and something hopeful. So, if you could give us a minute of that, I think many people would look forward to having something to hold on to. Uh, well, you're. You're doing this at a time that is probably one of the greatest challenges for me because this is a very tough situation. But I, I do think if Hamas, for me, if Hamas loses control in Gaza, what that really means is they're too weak to prevent a new administration from coming in. Uh, if that's the outcome, I really do think we have a potential to transform Gaza. But I also think we can get back to the Saudi, the Saudi normalization with Israel which will have to have a passing component, it will be more serious than it might have been before. Uh, and, and that gives me a sense of real possibility. So um, I'm trying to uh, address, David, address David even when he's not here. Ambassador Ross, thank you. I hope you'll come back again because you make so much of this so clear for us and we're very grateful. Thank you. Always good to be with you.